Episode 2, Fourth Estate presents Cook's Chronicles, a podcast from me, Nigel Slater. In this series, you'll be joining me on the story of my life in the kitchen, from the first jam tart I made with my mother, standing on a chair, trying to reach the agar, through to what I'm cooking now. In this episode, we'll walk the streets of Paris and discover the joy of a freshly baked baguette and delve into the depths of the perfect sourdough starter. It started with a baguette. That first loaf, bought at dawn from a boulangerie on the way home after a night out in Paris, still warm, its crust crackling. The floury, craggy point of the bread, more crust than crumb, more air than loaf, wrenched off as I walked, and eaten, sans beurre, sans confiture, sans jambon, in the street will never leave me. There is more interesting bread than a baguette, but that memory has never dimmed, like the first forkful of char-grilled steak or the first illegal sip of beer. Even now, forty years on, retrieving the early morning round of bread from the toaster, juggling it from one hand to another on its way to the plate, I wish every slice could be the crust. It's the bread's crown, its point of glory. At home, making my weekly sourdough, I will risk the searing heat of my oven cranked to its highest setting, the occasional piercing burn to my wrist, just to get the crust as crisp as possible. It is what makes bread worth eating and worth baking. I can buy better bread now than at any point in my life. It is one of those things that is, without question, better than it used to be. The cottage loaf of my childhood, with its wonky top knot, may have disappeared in favour of the gnarled, oven-scorched crust of the sourdough loaf. But so toothsome is some of the bread now, that you might wonder why anyone would ever bake at home. Baking bread is time-consuming, and, making one loaf at a time, probably costs more than buying it from a shop. And yet we still do. I do. Weekly. As cooking goes, there is nothing more basic than forming and baking a loaf of bread. You don't do it for yourself. You make a loaf to share. You convince yourself, as you pull your proud piece of artistry out of the oven, that you and those you love could survive on that alone. A hand-raised loaf is not just a thing of beauty. It is a testament to our ability to turn the most basic ingredients, flour, yeast, salt and water, into sustenance for those we love. I bake bread, not every day, but usually once a week. I bake when I need to feel dough in my hands, or to relish the joy that is holding a handmade loaf. Baking at home is inevitably something for the weekend, where I can be more generous with my time. It is also very much a winter activity for me, possibly because, as a household, we eat less bread in summer. Working with yeast can seem like sorcery. I do believe there is a certain magic involved, but it is also straightforward and deeply satisfying once you get the hang of it. That said, the capriciousness of yeast can be off-putting to the first-time baker. I fully remember the loaves I made as a teenager, ending their days turfed onto the lawn for the birds. What is more, as if my feelings weren't hurt enough already, the blackbirds, starlings and sparrows will then proceed to ignore them. You can make a good loaf without yeast, a quickly made bread, whose crust is risen not with the miracle that is yeast, but by bicarbonate of soda, and needs no proving or shaping might be a useful recipe to master. The speed appeals, but more than that, it is the fact that I can bake midweek. I can have a loaf in the oven within 15 minutes, baked in 30, sliced, toasted and buttered just a heartbeat or two later. The structure of soda bread is close textured and mealy, as much cake as bread. It is fragile to the touch, yet sustaining. A humble loaf. Seeded soda bread. I do like a seeded loaf, especially when sliced and toasted. Pumpkin, linseed, 
sunflower or hemp seeds introduce some interest to a standard soda bread. Linseeds should be crushed if we are to make the most of their plentiful omega-3 fats, but I use them simply for their nutty taste and silky texture. Mix 1 times 500 gram loaf. 225 grams of wholemeal flour. 225 grams of plain flour. A level teaspoon of bicarbonate of soda. Half a teaspoon of sea salt. One teaspoon of caster sugar. Three tablespoons of golden linseeds. Three tablespoons of sunflower seeds. Two tablespoons of pumpkin seeds. 350 mils of buttermilk. Set the oven at 220 degrees centigrade. Place a heavy casserole, about 22 centimetres in diameter, together with its lid, in the oven to heat up. Sift the flours, bicarbonate of soda and salt into a large bowl. Stir in the caster sugar. Add the linseeds, sunflower and pumpkin seeds, and fold evenly through the flour. Pour in the buttermilk and mix thoroughly to a slightly sticky dough. Dust a pastry board or the work surface generously with flour. Working fairly quickly, pat the dough into a round large enough to fit snugly into the casserole. Remove the hot pan from the oven. Dust the inside generously with flour, which will prevent the loaf from sticking. Then lower the dough into the casserole. Cover with the lid. Then return to the oven and bake for 20 minutes. Remove the lid and continue baking for a further five minutes. Then lift the dish from the oven and leave to rest for 10 minutes before freeing the loaf and placing on a rack to cool. When I was writing Appetite, something of a magnum opus on basic home cooking, I was determined to offer a recipe for a white loaf. Uncomplicated, straightforward, simple to execute. I discounted using fresh yeast, as it is far from easy to access. Plumping instead for the dried, easy-baked granules in foil sachets. Easy buy, easy bake. The method was written in such a way that I felt anyone could do it. For many, it seemed, this was their first attempt at a loaf. And to this day, I am told stories of people's success with it. There are certainly more inventive recipes using sourdough starters and any number of different flours, but the recipe remains what I set out to provide, a simple, no-messing introduction to making your own loaf. A simple loaf, or as I called it an appetite, a really good and very easy white loaf. Mix one very large loaf. One kilo of white bread flour. Two seven gram sachets of instant dried yeast, 20 grams of sea salt, 700 mils of water. Take your largest, widest mixing bowl and tip in the flour, yeast, and salt. Pour in almost all of the water and mix it to a sticky dough. Keep mixing for a minute or so. The dough will become less sticky. Then add a little more flour until you have a dough that is soft, springy, and still slightly sticky to the touch. Generously flour a large, flat work surface and scoop the dough out onto it. Work the dough, pushing it with your hands, pressing it flat with your palms. Fold the far edge towards you and push it back into the dough with the heel of your hand. Continue folding and pushing the dough. Work firmly but gently, with none of that brutal banging people tell you about, folding and pushing the ball between your hands for 10 minutes. It should feel soft, springy and alive, which of course, being full of yeast, it is. The technique is less important than you may have been led to believe. What is important is that you carry on gently but firmly pummeling the dough. As you do so, you will feel it become lighter, and springier. If you find it exhausting, then you're pushing the dough too hard. Place the ball of dough back in the bowl, cover it with a clean tea towel and put it somewhere warm but not hot for an hour or so. 
it should be well out of a draught. An airing cupboard is ideal. The dough should almost double in size. The time it takes will depend on how hot or moist your room is, the exact type of flour you've used, and the age of your yeast, but it will probably be about 45 minutes to an hour. Once the dough has almost doubled in size, you need to tip it out onto a floured surface again, scraping out any dough that has stuck to the bowl, and give it another short session of pushing and squeezing. A couple of minutes will do fine. Bring the dough into a ball again and place it on a baking sheet. Dust it heavily with flour, then cover with a tea towel and return it to the warm place to rise again. Set the oven 250 centigrade. After an hour or so, the dough will have spread, and somewhat alarmingly. You want it to be twice its original size, or as near as dammit. Gently, and I do mean gently, tuck it back into a neat, high ball, and place it softly in the oven. Don't slam the door. Leave the loaf to bake for 10 minutes. Then turn the heat down to 220 degrees centigrade. After 25 to 30 minutes, you can check the loaf's doneness. It should sound hollow when you tap its bottom, like a drum. Let the loaf cool on a cooling rack. Try not to cut straight into it. Give it time to settle before slicing. For all that I bang on about the crackling, flour-dusted crust, sometimes a soft roll is what you want. A crust that is pale, giving, and pleasingly springy. A sweet and open crumb. A tender, plumptious bun. You'll get this sort of bread if you add yoghurt or kefir or indeed milk to a bread dough. Include a puddle of olive oil and you are well on your way to producing something altogether softer and richer. Tread a step further and introduce eggs and you have brioche, but we're not going there. I think of these enriched breads as something to make in spring, for no other reason than the time feels right. Their pleasingly yellow crumb feels in tune with what is happening in the garden. There's a wonderful crocus-yellow saffron bread I long to make, but I've never got round to it. Buns that have an affinity with cream cheese or smoked salmon, with dill, rosemary, and the tang of sheep's and goat's milk cheeses. The buns that follow could hardly be easier. They rise like a dream and smell sweetly of snow-white cheese and mountain herbs. Soft rolls with feta and rosemary. Mix six rolls. 500 grams of plain flour, one and a half teaspoons of fast-acting dried yeast, half a teaspoon of sea salt, 200 milliliters of kefir, three tablespoons of olive oil, 100 mils of warm water, 200 grams of feta cheese, three bushy sprigs of rosemary, and five bushy sprigs of thyme. To finish, a few sprigs of thyme and rosemary, and a little olive oil. You will need a deep-sided rectangular baking dish or bread tin, approximately 25 by 16 centimetres. Put the flour, yeast and salt in a large, warm mixing bowl. Put the kefir in a jug. Add the olive oil and the warm water and stir well. Combine the kefir mixture and flour with a wooden spoon or your hands and mix until you have a soft and slightly sticky dough. Crumble the feta into a small bowl. Remove the leaves from the rosemary and thyme, finely chop them, and add to the crumbled cheese. If you're making the dough by hand, tip onto a floured board and knead the cheese and herbs into it. If you prefer the easy way, use a food mixer fitted with a dough hook to knead the cheese and herbs into the dough. Continue kneading for a couple of minutes, adding a little more flour if necessary to stop it sticking, then put the dough back in its bowl, cover with a clean, warm cloth, and put it in a warm place. 
leave the dough in peace until it has risen to almost twice its original size. Line the baking tin with a piece of baking parchment. Cut the dough into six equal pieces, then shape each one into a round bun. Place the buns in the baking tin, three down each side, then return to the warm place, cover it with a cloth, and leave for about 30 minutes until nicely risen and touching one another. Set the oven at 220 degrees centigrade. Toss the herbs in the olive oil and scatter them over the rolls. Then bake for about 20 minutes until lightly golden brown. Enriching a basic bread dough with olive oil gives you a soft, open-textured bread that is sublime for tearing apart and thrusting into soft, fragrant mounds of hummus, beetroot or bean puree, or just more olive oil. The oil you knead into the dough lends a richness that leaves traces of deliciously salty, herb-scented oil on your fingertips. Focaccia is pretty easy to make, to be honest. Baked in a deep tray, it is less demanding than a loaf and surprisingly good-natured. It keeps for a day or two, prevented from drying out by its oil content, and is very good toasted. My initial aversion was due to the cakey quality of many I tried, and the inclusion of sun-dried tomatoes. Along with tomato puree and passata, sun-dried tomatoes are far from my favourite ingredients. Baking my own, I could introduce briny green olives and a scattering of thyme leaves instead. The best focaccia I have eaten was one made with a sourdough starter and begun three days in advance. Fine for the hobby baker and those who know what they want to eat three days in advance. I like a quicker fix, so I have settled on a recipe that requires just one overnight spell in the fridge. Something of a compromise, I agree, but the result is a more open crumb and, I think, a better flavour than those that are risen and baked on the same day. Crisp on top and bottom, a good spongy, chewy crumb, and satisfyingly olive-oily, this is seriously good for Katya. I should add that I sometimes stir two tablespoonfuls of sourdough starter into the warm water with the yeast and sugar. The inclusion is far from crucial, but it produces an even lighter, chewier loaf. Green olive and thyme focaccia. One for an early summer lunch. Goat's milk cheese in thick, chalky slices, magenta ribbons of pickled red cabbage, and this focaccia, torn into oily tufts. Makes one large loaf. 400 mils of warm water, two teaspoons of easy-bake dried yeast, one teaspoon of sea salt, one teaspoon of caster sugar, Two tablespoons of sourdough starter, that's optional. 500 grams of strong white bread flour. Six tablespoonfuls of olive oil, plus a little extra for the baking tin. 100 grams of green or lemon marinated olives, stoned. The leaves from six bushy sprigs of thyme, sea salt flakes. You will also need a high-sided baking tin approximately 34 by 24 centimetres. Put the water and yeast into a large mixing bowl and add the salt and sugar. If you are including a little of your sourdough starter, do so now, stirring it into the water till dissolved. Mix in the flour either by hand or with a wooden spatula. Add two tablespoonfuls of the olive oil and mix loosely into the dough. Cover the bowl with a cloth and refrigerate overnight. The dough will need a good eight hours. Next day, when the dough will have risen to about twice its original size, chop the olives and the thyme leaves and mix them into the dough along with another two tablespoons of the oil. Lightly oil the baking tin and turn the dough out into the tin. Push the dough out to fit the tin with your fist gently pushing it almost into the corners. It will swell during the second proving. Then wrap the tin in a cloth and place in a warm spot for a good hour, perhaps two, until it has risen to twice its size. 
set the oven at 220 degrees centigrade. When the oven is ready, use a floured finger to push several hollows into the dough. Then scatter the surface lightly with sea salt flakes and bake for 30 minutes till golden. Remove from the oven, pour the remaining olive oil over the surface, then release from its tin with a palette knife and serve. It is 2017 and I'm working in the Middle East, making a series of documentaries with James and a television crew. It is early morning in Tehran and we are filming at a bakery where the bakers are lifting newly baked sheets of flatbread from the ancient and frankly terrifying brick ovens with long wooden shovels. Men are queuing at the door on their way back from the mosque. Each long, thin loaf is folded over and tucked under the buyer's arm like a broadsheet newspaper. As I stand outside the bakery, waiting for the crew to wind up, I tear a jagged strip from my sheet of warm, blistered flatbread. The baguette moment I had 40 years ago floods back. That single lump of bread that changed everything. Here was a revelation, like the first sip of green tea, London 2008, the first true espresso, Milan 1979, that initial dunk of chewy, open-textured sourdough bread in jewel-bright olive oil, San Francisco 1995. The seductiveness of good flatbread, the sheets of ubiquitous warm dough, blackened, blistered and puckered, was suddenly as clear as the morning call to prayer that had followed us throughout the Middle East. More crucially, nothing could be as far from those bendy slippers of damp dough I had previously known as flatbread. At home, I make my own flatbread in an everyday domestic oven. The result is less dusty, fragrant and interesting than that baked in an ancient brick oven. But it is what I have. No bread is simpler to make. No bread is more efficient for scooping up garlicky purees of chickpeas and tahini. Nothing else seems quite right spread with soft, white cream cheese and a garnet spoonful of sour cherry jam. Even baked in a state-of-the-art stainless steel oven, it is bread that still feels as old as time. Herb flatbread I see flatbread baked all over the world in brick ovens, on pebbles and on metal plates over an open fire. As you watch each piece puff up in the pan, you know you are doing something that has barely changed in thousands of years. Despite my respect for its simplicity, I also like moving things on a little, if only for myself and have taken to adding some complementary seasonings to the basic dough. A sprinkling of the dried herb mix za'atar, replacing some of the water with yoghurt or pleasingly sour kefir. The result is a light, aromatic bread that is particularly good with whipped feta or mackerel pâté. Makes 12 flatbreads. For the basic dough, 500 grams of strong white bread flour. 10 grams of salt, a pinch of caster sugar, two teaspoons of instant yeast, about 175 mils of water, 175 mils of kefir or yoghurt, and three teaspoonfuls of za'atar. Put the flour, salt, sugar and yeast in a large, warm mixing bowl, then pour in the water, kefir and za'atar. Mix thoroughly with a wooden spoon, then turn out onto a floured surface. Knead lightly for five minutes. If you're using a food processor with a dough hook, you can knead for just three minutes. When the dough feels smooth and silky, place it back in the mixing bowl, cover it with a warm tea towel, and leave it in a warm, humid place to rise for about an hour until the dough has almost doubled in size. Tip the dough onto a floured surface, fold repeatedly until all the air is knocked out of it, then tear it into 12 equal pieces. Roll each piece into a ball. Lightly flour a baking sheet, then flatten each ball with your hand or a rolling pin into a round roughly 18 centimetres in diameter. 
placing them on the baking sheet as you go. By all means, go for ovals or slipper shapes if that's what you want. Get a large, dry frying pan hot over a high heat. Then place a disc of dough onto the hot pan. The warmth will make it first puff up, then start to brown patchily. Turn the bread over and let it colour on the other side. Lift it out and wrap in a clean tea towel. Repeat with the rest of the dough. You could have two or three pans on the go. The quiet rhythm of baking, turning and tucking them up in a cloth is positively pleasing. This bread, warm from the oven, is at its best when used to scoop up whipped feta. Mix together equal quantities of mashed feta and thick yoghurt. Season with coarsely ground black pepper and beat lightly with a wooden spoon, stirring in a trickle of olive oil. One of the rewards of my advancing years is that I feel free to enjoy the foods I once considered as being reserved for the elderly. Buttered crumpets and fruitcake, custard tarts and toffee, eclairs and toasted tea cakes. It also means, joy of joys, I can tuck into malt loaf. Everything about this curiously British fruit bread is worthy of our attention. Its generous freckling of raisins and currants, the sticky top, and its back notes of licorice and hops. Dark and treacly, sweet, but not overly so, and a good keeper when wrapped in waxed paper or foil. Malt loaf deserves to be better known. When I put the recipe in my observer column, I was inundated with notes from readers for whom it stirred memories. As I am now officially a pensioner, I intend to make it regularly, and rather wish I'd done so all along. Sticky, seeded malt loaf. A cold winter's afternoon, almost dusk, is the time I need a slice of malt loaf, cut thick and buttered. It is deliciously nostalgic. It occurred to me that the basic loaf could be embellished with seeds and more dried fruits to give a treacly, almost cake-like bread suitable for eating with cheese in the way an Eccles cake can be eaten with cheddar. Makes one loaf. 150 grams of malt extract, 100 grams of light muscovado sugar, 2 tablespoons of black treacle. 250 grams of plain flour, one teaspoon of baking powder, a pinch of salt, 50 grams of rolled oats, 50 grams of prunes, stoned weight, 125 mils of black tea, two eggs, 100 grams of sultanas or raisins, two tablespoons of pumpkin seeds, two tablespoons of linseeds. To finish, a little more malt extract, a tablespoon of pumpkin seeds, a tablespoon of linseeds, and some full-flavoured blue cheese to serve. You will need a deep rectangular cake tin, measuring 20 centimetres by 9, lined with baking parchment. Set the oven at 160 degrees centigrade. Gently warm the malt extract, muscovado sugar and black treacle in a small saucepan without stirring until the sugar has dissolved. Combine the flour, baking powder, salt and oats in a large mixing bowl. Cut the prunes into small pieces and stir them in. Make the tea. Break the eggs into a small bowl and beat lightly with a fork. Pour the warm malt and sugar mixture into the flour, together with the tea and the beaten eggs. Then fold the sultanas, pumpkin seeds and linseeds into the batter. Scoop the mixture, which will be soft and runny like a gingerbread batter, into the lined cake tin. Bake for an hour until risen and lightly springy to the touch. Remove from the oven and leave to cool in the tin. While the cake cools, brush the surface with a little more malt extract and sprinkle with the extra pumpkin seeds and linseeds. Leave to thoroughly cool before slicing and serving with blue cheese. What do you always have in your freezer? 
is a perennial interview question, and one I answer dutifully despite its singular lack of originality. Ice cream? I've honestly never known my freezer without a tub. Make that two. Chinese, Japanese or Korean dumplings? That's an emergency dinner in 15 minutes. A roll of all-butter puff pastry. And almost always a supply of berries and stone fruits that are impossible to find out of season. By which I mean gooseberries, damsons and their kin. Most of the space, however, is taken up by freezer boxes full of blackcurrants. I buy them in summer and freeze them for crumbles and pies, cakes and meringues. But more crucially, for simmering with a little sugar and water to have with yoghurt or thick kefir for breakfast. Unseasonal for sure. But on a bitterly cold winter's morning, when there's a fire in the hearth and frost ferns on the windows, I can think of few things more welcome than a jug of inky blackcurrant compote stirred into a bowl of porridge or thick yoghurt. I'm really happier than when I have flour on my hands. Dough-made and rising under its snow-white tea towel, the possibilities become endless. We can stick to the classics, repeating our successes ad infinitum, or we can play a little. Happy with my focaccia recipe, I could go on tweaking its savoury elements forever. Black olives and feta, pancetta and thyme, sun-dried tomato and pine nuts, or I could rethink it altogether. My books have recipes for an apple and walnut variation, another with black grapes, and one with blackberries, all made for eating with cheese. But what about a truly sweet version, still with olive oil? Its presence is what makes focaccia focaccia, but also with fruit for eating with cream or creme fraiche. Blackcurrants are, I admit, a surprising addition to focaccia, but a good one. You could use gooseberries or cherries. It does sound odd, but dipping fruit-freckled fingers of sugary, olive-oily focaccia into whipped cream is really rather wonderful. Blackcurrant focaccia Makes one large rectangular loaf. 400 mils of warm water 2 teaspoons of easy-bake dried yeast 1 teaspoon of sea salt 1 tablespoon of honey 2 tablespoonfuls of sourdough starter Optional, but your loaf will be lighter for it. 500 grams of strong white bread flour. 6 tablespoonfuls of olive oil, plus a little extra for the baking tin. 250 grams of fresh or frozen black currants. Blueberries, blackberries or cherries would also work. 2 tablespoons of granulated sugar. You will also need a high-sided baking or roasting tin approximately 34 by 24 centimetres. Put the water and yeast into a large mixing bowl and stir in the salt and honey. If you're using a sourdough starter, then add it now. Incorporate the flour either by hand or with a wooden spatula. Add two tablespoons of the olive oil and mix lightly into the dough. Cover the bowl with a cloth and refrigerate for a good eight hours. I leave it overnight. Next day, when the dough has risen to about twice its original size, remove the currants from their stems and add to the dough, with a further two tablespoons of olive oil, and mix lightly to avoid bursting the berries. Lightly oil the baking tin, and turn the dough out into the tin. Push the dough out to fit the tin with your fist, gently pushing it almost into the corners. It will swell during the second proving, then cover with a cloth and leave in a warm place for an hour or so until it has risen to twice its size. Set the oven at 220 degrees centigrade. When the oven is up to heat, push several hollows into the dough with your floured finger, then scatter the surface lightly with the granulated sugar and bake for 30 minutes until golden. Remove from the oven Pour the remaining oil over the surface, then release from its tin with a palette knife and serve. A note on cherry focaccia. Use juicy, ripe cherries and remove the stones before adding to the dough. I spend as much time as possible in Finland. In Ulu, 
on the edges of Lapland. I am first down for breakfast. There is a fire lit in the hearth, fur rugs on the chairs, and bowls of porridge with a compote of blackcurrants. There is glowing lingonberry juice in shot glasses, with a dusting of spruce powder, smoked fish on a wavy-edged wooden board, and a whole side of dill-edged gravlax. Even then, I managed to tuck into venison black pudding and bacon, and a dish of kale and potato hash. Most of all, there is bread. Dark rye the colour of black treacle, rye buns with a seeded crown, sheets of crisp bread the size of a tabloid. This is bread that appears on the table as a whole napkin-wrapped loaf for you to slice as much as you wish. Bread that sets you up for the day with its scent of molasses and whole grains, damp, heavy tobacco-coloured crumbs only a step away from Christmas cake. There is much crisp bread consumed here, and much consumed at home too. As often as not, it appears for breakfast, with a soft curl of gravlax and a trickle of mustard and honey sauce. I am known for piling each jagged-edged cheek with ricotta, cottage cheese or goat's curd, with apricots in summer and autumn, blueberries for the rest of the year. It took quite a while to get crisp bread right, and by right I mean light, dustily wholesome and easily shattered. I use seeds, pumpkin, linseed, poppy and sunflower, both in the dough and scattered on top. They add a satisfying crunch. The poppy seeds are especially beautiful, steely blue-grey, like driving Finnish rain. Three seed crisp bread makes 24 crisp breads. 300 grams of white rye flour, 150 grams of wholemeal rye flour, a teaspoon of sea salt, two tablespoons of sunflower seeds, two tablespoons of pumpkin seeds, one tablespoon of linseeds, a tablespoon of honey, 250 mils of warm water, and two tablespoons of melted butter. And to finish, poppy seeds, linseeds, sunflower seeds, and sea salt. Put the flowers into a large bowl and add the salt, the sunflower and pumpkin seeds, and the linseeds. Stir in the honey, water, and melted butter. Mix to a firm dough. Turn the dough out onto a lightly floured board and knead for a full minute. Wrap in baking parchment and refrigerate for 30 minutes. Line a baking sheet, or better still, two, with baking parchment. Set the oven at 220 degrees centigrade. Divide the dough into 24 equal pieces. Have your jars of seeds and sea salt by your pastry board. Lightly flour the board, and scatter generously with seeds and sea salt. I use about a teaspoon of each for every two breads. Then place a piece of dough on top of the seeds and roll out to a rectangle roughly 12 by 9 centimetres. You don't want them to be too uniform, looking like they were made in a factory. Continue with the others, a few at a time, replenishing the seeds and salt after every two or three breads. Pierce the surface of the dough all over with holes using a fork or skewer as you wish. Bake for 10 to 12 minutes until truly crisp. Watch carefully as they are apt to burn in a heartbeat. Remove and continue with the rest of the dough. Once cool, the breads will keep in a biscuit tin for several days. The Sourdough Chronicles In October 1995, I ate at Chez Panisse, Alice Waters' quietly lovely restaurant in Berkeley, California. It was a huge deal. The dinner was a thank you to my friend John for putting me up at his apartment for a while, and was, to be honest, more than I could afford to spend. As we sat down and were handed the menu, decorated with a watercolour of radishes by Patricia Curtin, a basket of bread was set down on the table. Exhausted from a day spent walking San Francisco, we pounced. I'd never eaten bread quite like it. The crust was dark, almost black. The crumb was filled with huge air pockets, 
It was chewy and deliciously so. Embarrassingly, we finished the entire basket even before we finished our drinks. We were young and hungry. In a heartbeat, our empty basket was silently replaced with a full one. I don't always remember restaurant meals, even those I had last week. But this one, roasted figs and mozzarella, a seafood stew with almonds, sweet peppers and aioli, and a hot tangerine creme brulee, I doubt I shall ever forget. I use their salad dressing recipe to this day. That was my introduction to sourdough bread. There was probably no better place to eat it at that moment. The sourdough I knew from Paris was unremarkable. In truth, it tasted like a bit of old cake. This San Francisco sourdough was something completely different. Good sourdough can still fill me with sheer unbridled greed. I am not bored with it the way others are. I thank my lucky stars that it is here and bow to all those bakers who have mastered it. But it has to be said that there is a lot of poorly made sourdough around. The crust is weak, the baking timid, the inside spongy and dry. Hobby baking really took off after we got hooked on the great British bake-off, and again when we found ourselves in the midst of a pandemic. Homemade bread is both comfort and cure. During the Covid pandemic, sourdough became a thing. I'm not sure why, but suddenly the internet was a bubble with pictures of starters, the jars of fermenting flour and water paste that make a sourdough loaf rise. Giles Cooper, who played the young me in the stage production of Toast, left a glass jar of his own starter on my doorstep. I made my first loaf, and with the encouragement of other kindred spirits, I kept on making them. Close friends started sending each other pictures of our latest bakes. For me, a Saturday morning thing, just as others post photographs of their children or their cats. We compared notes, sent ecstatic emojis applauding one another's handiwork and generally enthused and commiserated as seemed appropriate. Some loaves were, and still are, better than others. Some make me proud. Some make me feel like a total failure. But either makes great toast. And whilst there must be a million sleeping sourdoughs at the back of the country's fridges, it is a habit that many have continued since life returned to near normal. And yes, my starter has a name. Eric, since you're asking. I include my sourdough story here only because I probably get more enjoyment from baking a good loaf than almost any other form of cooking and suspect that others might do too. It's a bit geeky, an up and down time for the emotions. You feel like weeping when your first starter dies. But let me assure you that it is immensely, insanely rewarding when it works. A Sourdough Diary The first day. Weighed 100 grams of strong white bread flour and 100 grams of lukewarm water, then stirred them together in a sticky white paste in a white china bowl. Slip the bowl inside a heavy-duty open freezer bag. I wouldn't normally have these in the house, but they work better than covering the dough with a tea towel, because they encourage the humidity essential for the flour to ferment. Then left it, the mouth of the bag gaping, in the laundry room. The location chosen for its warm, slightly humid quality. Failing that, I would probably have chosen a window ledge above a radiator. The second day. Nothing much happening. The dough has softened enough that it can be poured, albeit slowly, from the bowl, and the smell is simply that of slightly porridge-like wet flour, not a trace of sour or ferment. Doubts are setting in. Am I just being impatient? The third day. The starter has risen, the surface has a thin crust, and the smell is that of an untoasted crumpet. Below the surface, there are bubbles and a sticky, ivory-coloured goo. It seems alive. I remove 30 grams of it, put it into a clean bowl, then stir in 100 grams of lukewarm water and 100 grams of strong white bread flour. I discard the rest. The bowl, 
and resulting pace to return to its warm home. I have a good feeling about this one. The fourth day. Bit of a quandary. The mixture is certainly alive and kicking. Bubbles are breaking the surface, even bursting as I watch. What concerns me is the smell, which has a faint note of parmesan. Some online research suggests I should chuck it and start again. Others suggest it is as it should be at this point. The smell will sweeten once I start feeding it regularly. So lively is it that I can't bear to throw it away. So once again I feed it, taking 30 grams of the starter, discarding the rest, and stirring in 100 grams each of strong white bread flour and water. This time I used bottled water, as some online suggestions say it will help. I lightly cover it and put it back in its safe place, the bag as always open. The fifth day. Much jubilation this morning at the sight of a frothing starter. The whole bowl seems to be fizzing and bubbling and smells yeasty, but not particularly sour. Once again, I feed it by mixing 30 grams of starter with 100 grams each of flour and water and return it to its warm place. Again, I discard the rest of the starter. The sixth day. The starter is looking rather different now. A whole lot more alive. There is a thin crust, but beneath the surface the dough is stretchy and bubbly. I remove 30 grams of it, stir it into 100 grams each of warm water and strong white bread flour, then transfer it to a storage jar. I leave it out overnight, then loosely cover it and keep it in the fridge till the day before I need it. And that is it. A jar of bubbly, yeasty sourdough starter. A little pot of opportunity and joy. A few points I feel worth mentioning. Not every starter succeeds. Be prepared to try more than once. At first, you will need to discard quite a bit of your starter each day. It is worth remembering as you pour it down the sink. It's only a bit of flour and water. Every starter is different, and some are stronger and more active than others. If you can't be bothered to make a starter from scratch, buy one online, or beg some from a geeky baking friend. There's always one. Your jar of yeasty bubbles will keep in the fridge for weeks, especially if given the occasional feed and a while out of the fridge. I feed Eric once a fortnight, leave him out overnight, then pop him back in the cold once he's active again. If it doesn't rise and bubble when removed from the fridge, then it has probably passed away, and you should pour it down the sink. Oh, and by the way, raw bread dough is the death to washing up brushes. Don't use your best handmade wooden brushes to clear starter or dough bowls. Soak everything in warm soapy water, pour it away, then wash the bowl before putting it through the dishwasher as usual. For one large loaf. First stage. 100 grams of sourdough starter, 350 grams of warm water, 550 grams of strong white bread flour. Second stage, 10 grams of sea salt, 30 grams of warm water. The night before you plan to bake, remove the starter from the fridge and leave it loosely covered in a warm but not hot place. The next day, Weigh 100 grams of the starter into a mixing bowl. Then pour in 350 grams of warm water. Stir until the starter is more or less dissolved, then stir in the flour. Don't knead. Just cover with a clean cloth and leave in a warm place for 30 minutes. Dissolve the salt in the warm water. Then pour over the dough and squish everything together with your hands. Wipe a little oil around the inside of a second large bowl, then transfer the dough to it. Cover and set aside in a warm place for an hour. Now there are many, many ways of incorporating air into your dough, but this is the way I do it. Place the dough on a very lightly floured board and gently pull it into a rectangle, about 30 by 18 centimetres. Measurements are only a rough guide. There is nothing crucial about this. 
Now, with the short end facing you, fold the dough into three. I fold the top third down first, and then the bottom third over that. Now give the dough one quarter turn, as if you were turning it from 12 o'clock to three. Tease it into a rectangle again. Then, with the short side facing you, fold into three once more. Give it another quarter turn, as if you were turning it from three o'clock to six. Do this twice more, stretching, folding and turning one quarter each time. Be gentle, don't knead or tug the dough. You are simply trapping air between the folds. Put the dough back in its oiled bowl. Cover and leave for a further 30 minutes, then repeat all over again. Stretch, fold, turn and so on. Do this every half hour for a further five times. Now, put the covered bowl of dough into the fridge and say goodnight. Bring the dough from the fridge and turn out onto a lightly floured board. Shape into a neat ball and put it back in the oiled bowl and leave it for an hour. Set the oven 230 degrees centigrade. Place a cast iron casserole covered with its lid in the oven. Once the oven is up to temperature, very carefully, with good thick oven gloves, not a folded tea towel, remove the pot from the oven, lift off the lid and tip the dough from its bowl into the pot. Cover with the lid, place the pot back in the oven and bake for 25 minutes. Remove the lid and continue baking for a further 20 minutes. Remove the pot from the oven, tip the loaf out onto a cooling rack and leave to cool for at least 45 minutes before cutting. And I know it's tempting to cut a slice off while the loaf is still hot, but the loaf hasn't finished baking until it's rested. Much happens during the resting period and we must leave it to happen.